welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. As always, I'm joined with Sam Backer and I'm Saxon Baird. And today we are diving into the origins of gangster rap. We'll be talking with Felicia and Jaja Viator, who is a professor of history at San Francisco State University and author of the book To Live and Defy in L.A., How Gangster Rap Changed America. We really wanted to talk with Viator about this story and her book because it really zeroes in on so many aspects of what we like to talk about here on Money for Nothing. You know, in particular, Viator really focuses on the social, political, and economic conditions that led to the likes of gangster rap and Easy E really becoming a nationwide, if not eventually worldwide, phenomenon, and how it helped hip hop stick as a lasting genre and not just a regional passing sound out of New York City. This is maybe one of my f- most favorite episodes that we've done, and I'm not even a part of it. Unfortunately, I had family issues to tend to, so I was not able to join the conversation between Sam and Viator. But the conversation went so well that Sam and I decided to cut any preamble and just get to the interview. So real quick before we do that as always i uh, encourage you to take either your left or your right thumb and give us a quick rating on whatever podcast app you're using so we can spread the good word of money for nothing and what we do on this show also i encourage you to please subscribe to our newsletter you can do that by going to moneyfornothing.substack.com that's the number four and as always thanks for listening here is Sam talking with Felicia and JJ Viator about her excellent book, To Live and Define LA How Gangster Rap Changed America. Enjoy. A fresh El Camino rolling Kilo G. He rolled down his window and he started to say, It's all about making that GTA. Cause the boys in the hood are always hard. You come talking that trash, we'll pull your car. Knowing nothing in life but to be legit. Don't quote me, boy, cause I ain't said shit. Get the fuck out! I love this book because for, for a bunch of reasons, but one is because you decided to write a book about L.A. West Coast gangster rap. And there is not, I mean, there's barely a Snoop Dogg. There's no Tupac. There's many of the figures that you think of as central to the story, appear, if they appear at all, at the very end. And you actually really tell the story that's, the, the the story before the story that that most people are are kind of um are kind of used to. So I just maybe a place to start is why why do you take that approach? What do you think that tells us about about this music? As the project developed, I realized the book was really going to be about how hip hop crosses over, how it crosses over into the commercial mainstream, when that happens, why it happens, and how it's connected to the LA origin story. So the reason why it ends in 92 with the Los Angeles uprising is in large part because that to me is the watershed moment. That's the point at which hip hop uh, moves from the margins and becomes central to American culture. And it's not coincidental that it happens in 92. It's not coincidental that it happens after Rodney King, after the trial, And immediately after the uprising with the release of those two very important West Coast albums, Dr. Dre, The Chronic, and of course, Ice Cube, The Predator. So 
that's why it ends where it, where it does. Cause, because really what I wanted to do was to st- tell the story of how hip hop crosses over. So that was a big piece of the project. And then you're right. I mean, ultimately what I wanted to try to identify in the telling of this story was what's special about Los Angeles. You know, if we're, if, if I wanted to tell this different origin story, if I wanted to, um, do something more than just say that LA is kind of this renegade thing that happens sometime in the late 1980s. And I wanted to, to talk about Los Angeles rap on its own terms and talk about the origins of it on its own terms within the landscape of Los Angeles. I had to figure out what was special about it. What I talk a lot about in the book are these mobile DJ dance scenes in LA, because this to me is what really separates LA's hip hop origin story from New York's origin story And that scene is really a window into all of the things that make Los Angeles special at this time for rap music and for Black youth music culture more generally. And um, I think you can't really understand someone like Dre, who was initially a mobile DJ. You can't really understand Snoop Dogg, who is produced in part by... DJ Pooh, who was part of one of those big DJ crews, the uh, Uncle Jam's Army in LA. You can't understand kind of the way in which the DIY culture of Los Angeles rap develops without looking at those mobile dance scenes. And, and what I should say is that there, of course, are DJs in New York, right? So, so if, you t- if you look at the Bronx and you know, the, the typical origin story of New York, you've got guys like Cool Herc, you've got Bombada, you've got Grandmaster Theodore. You've got guys who have turntables and amps and towers of speakers, right? So they are mobile in the sense that they're moving from party to party. But LA is something altogether different because DJs in LA from the late 70s and the early 80s. So simultaneously in LA, DJs are creating collectives. So they're building these crews. I mean, like 10, 20 DJs deep sometimes, like true businesses which I know, which you'll appreciate because of course, like your, your podcast, your listeners are interested in sort of, you know, music as commodity. So, you know, thinking about the business side of it and really what you see in LA in the early stages of rap in LA are the development of these businesses, these DJ mobile crews there. I mean, they refer to themselves as sound systems, as DJ production organizations, as armies, right? The uncle jam army. So they're businesses and they are branding themselves as such and they have overhead costs, right? So they have the cost to rent conference centers or a ballroom, or they have the cost of flyers. They have the cost to hire security, uh, the cost to book special acts. These guys in the early eighties are networking with LA record labels to book artists like Cameo and Midnight Star. And, and eventually they're even booking Run DMC. So they are throwing these big events. This is different from the, the schoolyard party, right? This is different from that. It's different from the house party, the barbecue. Like they're throwing huge events, thousands of kids. We're talking like 8,000, yeah. 10,000 kids, right? Totally, right? And you have to be a business in order to pull that off. You have to know how to network. You have to have a business plan. You have to know how to get folks in the arena. I mean, before you even get an arena, before you can justify that overhead cost, you have to know how to draw people in. You have to build a following. 
And they do that. They, and, and part of that is by networking within, within the community. So, you know, networking at schools and in neighborhoods, you know, within networking within the local gangs, networking through local radio like K-Day and KJLH. Uh, they're, they're doing all of the work to, um, and, and in addition, with, before we even talk about their talent, they're doing all of the work to, to build these events. What's really crucial of, about that and what makes it special from my point of view in terms of like the, the way that they lay the foundation for LA rap and for something like Ruthless is two things. The fact that, you know, they're building a scene that is, that is predominantly black. So these are, these scenes are happening within predominantly black communities in and around South LA and that that's important. It's also important because it, it might surprise us if we think of LA as this incredibly diverse city, right? It helps us kind of understand what is wrong about that perception, that, that it is a diverse city, but it also has this long history of racial and ethnic separation. So black communities that are, uh, as, as well as Asian and Latinx communities that are, that are sort of separated, living apart from each other, isolated from wider, richer coastal parts of the city, that this makes possible the kind of predominantly black dance scene that develops this huge, huge successful black scene that develops in the 1980s, that you can create a, uh, a community-based black economy within South LA during that period, right? And so that part of it's really important and, and the economy part of it's really important. The fact that like this is, these guys are, are helping to create the basis for this black community-based local economy. So and they're tapping into it, the party goers, these thousands of party goers, they also become a, a consumer base, you know, th that these DJs and later rappers can tap into to make a little profit by selling their own homemade music, by selling street tapes or selling, um, you know, like Egyptian Lover. Um, you know, he's one of the, the key DJs within the Uncle Jam's Army. He's one of the big draws for these parties. And he's producing tracks live at these events which is part of the draw so he's got his Roland 808 drum machine he's got his little Casio keyboard he's got his vocoder his mic and he's he's creating tracks live like Egypt Egypt for instance or yes 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 he creates these live initially and then he's like well you know what I've got thousands of people watching me who are hyped off what I'm doing so I'm going to take this music to the studio I'm going to record the tracks and then I'm going to take that master to a record presser press up a thousand copies of this track on vinyl. And then I'm going to sell these out the trunk to all these party goers. So it like, you can see that the sort of creates the infrastructure for this really elaborate, very successful, very profitable kind of economy within South LA uh, during this period. And, and that is like the, the basis for what becomes ruthless, really that DIY thing that we associated with independent labels in LA like ruthless you, you can't understand that without understanding these these crews. So let's let's take a step a step back for a second. I, in the eighties, a I guess, what's the kind of broader situation of these black communities in LA? And then I guess more specifically, like what are they spinning? Because my sense is that at least early on. A lot of this is is not what we think of as, as hip hop. It's these kind of related strains. It's electro. It's freestyle. It's kind of late period disco. It's a lot of different stuff. I mean, Egyptian Lover. What's amazing is is the extent to which you know, if anyone's listened to Egyptian Lover, it, it does not sound at all like what's gonna 
what NWA is going to sound like like four years later. Exactly. So, and, and that's, that's also, um, I think one of the misconceptions about LA rap is we point to the slow tempo storytelling bass heavy stuff that, you know, the boys in the hood is, is a good example of that. Right. So easy ease first track. I mean, when we think of early LA rap, we think of that, or we think of six in the morning, right. Ice T's ice T's breakthrough track. What's interesting is that, you know, if you, if you look at the early, early stages of LA rap or what is, what is referred to as LA hip hop early on in the early eighties, really what, what it is, is Egyptian lover. I mean, you know, so, so Egypt, Egypt would have been referred to as hip hop within LA circles. stuff there are tracks where egyptian lover is rapping but it's it's sort of talk rapping um so the the vocals just kind of ride the beat it's not the storytelling version of rap that we would think of if we're thinking of something like voice in the hood the the, the i think the electronic sounds the things that we might associate with something like electro or freestyle which i think retroactively we call egyptian lover that all of these things were were very much part of the early hip hop scene in LA and referred to as hip hop. So, I mean, I, I think the the analogy might be Africa Mabata, right? So if you if you listen to Africa Mabata stuff, then you can understand why early LA hip hop might not have uh, might sound like that. Like there there's a way that that electro sound was sort of synonymous with early hip hop until you get something like Run DMC until you get kind of the, the early Def Jam stuff. But I think for me, like listening to that and then also listening to other music that was popular. So you asked like what else is being played, played at these parties, Prince, you know, Ohio players, uh, Kraftwerk I mentioned, um, you know, some stuff that we might think of as funk, we might refer to as new wave. A lot of that stuff is being mixed in. And you have Parliament. I mean, Flashlight is kind of notorious at the time in the early 1980s at these big parties as uh, a gangster favorite. I mean, it is, you know, and of course, Parliament Flashlight comes out in, in 1978, and it's a huge, huge hit in, the, in these big mobile DJ dance parties in the first years of the 1980s. And one of the things that the DJs use is do is they use the song to diffuse tension. So if you have, you know, these are big parties and you have folks from all over the community, um, sometimes folks from rival neighborhoods, rival gangs. And so there's the potential for, for conflict. 
And so the DJs kind of learned that um, you needed to, you never want to like turn on the house lights or you never want to like get on the mic and tell people to stop fighting because that's not going to work. But the thing you do is you drop flashlight. And that's the song that it's a little slower paced than the typical, you know, than what Egyptian Lover is doing or Kraftwerk or, you know, it's, but it's a party favorite. It calms conflict, but it also simultaneously re-energizes the room. So there's the way, there's this way in which you get a mix of all of this in the soundscape of these early uh, mobile DJ parties that I, I listen to that and I, and I can totally see what's coming. Right. I mean, of course, we can connect Parliament Funkadelic to, to the G-Funk era that we associate with with Dr. Dre. But there's also a way in which kind of the the space age, otherworldly sound of flashlight isn't that far removed from what you hear in what Egyptian Lover is creating. I mean, in preparation for this, I, I listened to a lot of like... 88 to 92 LA albums and and what's remarkable is it reminded me of the extent to which like they're not not dance music right you've got I mean people in England are at the same time are taking similar beats boosting the BPM a little bit and making it the background of breakbeat hardcore and it's like these repetitive drum loops in a way that very much seems like it comes from it makes sense that it comes from a context in which this was dance music a few years before. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's funny because if you listen to Straight Outta Compton from top to bottom, then you, you will hear some electro, <laughs> you know, they, they, it's still there. Like there's still kind of that, um, it, it's almost as if they're not quite sure they've done the job of entertaining the folks who they're making the music for because electro is still, you know, it's, it's kind of petering out a little bit within the LA dance scene, but it's still there. I mean, it's still part of the scene. So you can hear it. You can hear kind of the, the remnants of it in, in straight out of Compton. The other thing I'll say is that JJ fad, that all girl group from Rialto, California, who put out supersonic, which was <laughs> one of my favorite, favorite songs when I was very young. Um, I mean, that is, that's a dance crossover hit, you know, and some of the early rap tracks that crossed over into urban contemporary radio were dance hits like salt and pepper, push it, of course, um, remixed by Cameron Paul in San Francisco to be a dance track. And so there was a way in which I think, the the higher BPM, the faster paced, the the dance crossover hits worked, and so I think some of those some some of the groups, especially LA groups, including NWA, I think they played with that. I mean, Easy E understood that JJ Fad would cross over, and he wanted a West Coast Salt and Pepper. Um, so there's this idea that dance music works and it works with, with rap audiences. So, so there, you know, those, those things are not necessarily in conflict and, and especially in the mid eighties, they really are happening simultaneously and in conjunction with each other. So in addition to these, this, this DJ mobile DJ dance crew scene, I mean, I think another thing that, that you write about a lot that, that also makes LA hip hop distinct is its relationship to gang culture and its relationship to the underground, you know, the easy crossover to the underground economies that circulate around gang culture. I mean, it seemed, you know, Easy e famously 
comes in to start what becomes Ruthless Records with a fair bit of financial backing from previous careers. And mm -hmm. right. um, just so so that was, I mean, because that's also a major kind of cultural force, albeit a profoundly misunderstood one in uh, mainstream American media, both at the time and later, that's also kind of really percolating and seems to be kind of gaining speed in, in L.A. At, at precisely this period as well, right? I mean, I think a good way to think about it is what does the economy look like during this period? It, nationally, but also locally. So we're talking about the Reagan era, right? So this is a pretty shitty economy for most people. I mean, excuse me for swearing, but, you know, unless you have a college degree, <laughs> unless you have a college degree with, with some connections, you've got a particular kind of privilege, white privilege, and, you know, specifically, if you don't have that trifecta, then you're not going to land a white collar career and you're likely going to be stuck in low wage service work. Uh, especially if you are in working class communities uh, of black LA, you're likely to, if you can get a job, you're likely to be making minimum wage either in retail or in fast food, right? So there's not a lot of opportunity for career advancement in that. There's not a whole bunch of dignity or pride in that. And there's not a lot of money in that, right? You're not pulling enough cash to save. You're not pulling enough cash to spend, uh, so, and, and this is if you can get a job and the, you know, unemployment rates are, are spiking in some of these communities during the, during the 1980s. So again, it's a shitty economy for most folks, unless you're a white college degree and you've got some connections. And so, uh, within that context, you know, what, what are the options? And I think that DJing is one making music, pressing music, selling that music. This is one option. And there are folks within the community who have provided that model. Like Egyptian Lover is a great example of that. Um, and there are lots of others who are, are making good money. I mean, Egyptian Lover is, you know, he's, he's riding around in a Cadillac that he buys with cash from, <laughs> from both the money that he's making from the Uncle Jam's Army events and from what he's making by selling his own records. Um, because there's no middleman, like he's, he's using the tools of the trade, uh, which is another thing that makes Los Angeles very special. There are a lot of tools of the record industry that are highly accessible to everyone. So there's a kind of a democratized way in which people can access the tools of the music industry within LA. So there's that route. Um, and then there's also, especially when uh, even before rock cocaine is introduced, I mean, you know, there, there's weed, there's PCP, there, there, um, there are ways that you can utilize the underground trade in drugs to supplement your income, to make ends meet, to support your family, uh, to support your crew and to, to, um, underwrite some of these events. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that, uh, Easy E isn't the only one who has cash from the drug trade to help to help seed his business, right? So, so that is part of the story here. I mean, I I I think it's also really important when talking about this stuff to just like take a step back and think about like punk rock in the '70s was at a bar and was also subsidized by a drug trade, right? Or we recently did an interview about the Grateful Dead. They're like bankrolled by asset money, 
Like, these relationships are not the way that this gets racialized in this discussion, which I think your book does a really great job of pointing out, that other other musicians somehow, like, don't get described as drug, you know, drug-related musicians. When, like, if you're playing at a bar, where's the bar making money? It's not from the music. <laughs> yeah. that I, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think a lot about punk rock as a, you know, in, in relationship to this early stage of hip hop too, because I think there, there are a lot of things that I'm thinking about in terms of punk rock and how it's connected to hip hop at that time, because I think that you have hip hop fans, hip hop scholars, hip hop historians who think about hip hop in punk rock terms as this music culture that is designed to be kind of against capitalist structures so it kind of makes sense what you're saying that that both scenes would be interested in using underground economy to to seed its businesses, uh, and that that would kind of fit with the ethic of of positioning the genre against big industry, against big capital, and against like these outside forces that might try to come in and make a commodity out of it. But I think there's 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 also a drive within hip hop, including among guys like Easy E, who came from the drug trade, to go straight. I mean, I think I think that what you know, part of the story that I tell about Easy E is that that a big part of his journey is to figure out how to get out of the drug game, and he tries a bunch of different things. I mean, for a minute, he's involved in like a mobile DJ crew himself. He, you know, he wants to um, he talks to Steve Yano over at the at the um uh, the rhodium record swap and he's thinking well maybe i want to you know sell records out of a out of a booth at the rhodium um he you know he's trying different things he wants to go straight like he he's he's he wants to make money in ways that will be sustainable and he and he lands on the record label he lands on on you know figuring out how to um you know how to have his own artist and how to become an artist himself and so there's a way in which i think hip-hop doesn't do what hardcore punk does i mean hardcore punk i think the the the, the movement if you want to call that call it that like it, it is diy it is barter based it is positioned against big industry like i mentioned but um and, and it's defensive against the popular music industry, right? Like hardcore punk does not want to make a commodity out of punk, right? So it wants, it, it's, it wants to stay on the margins. And hip hop is, is quite the antithesis of that. I mean, I think from the jump, hip hop artists realize that they're on the margins and they want to be on the inside. Like, you know, they want to be part of the cultural mainstream. So they're, you know, seeking access to the tools of the cultural mainstream like Eazy-E does because they're not white kids and because they don't already enjoy the privilege of being included in the cultural mainstream, right? So they, so it's fundamentally different from what punk rock is in the early 80s because these guys are driven by the fight for inclusion and for recognition and for monetary reward from the start. No, I, I, I can, that makes, that makes a, a tremendous amount of sense. And, 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 and it does fit. I mean, we, we recently did an episode about Fugazi mm -hmm. and for all like the, the really incredible work that those guys did. I mean, there is a certain positionality of like a primarily white scene coming out of DC. That's different that they're not, mm -hmm. you know, that there isn't like structural injustice 
pressing down on the the white population of DC in the same way that there is the the, the black right. citizens of Compton. Yeah, I, I have a good friend who's a musician. He has creative ties to both punk and rap, and he kind of he puts it perfectly where he says that you know the difference between the two between punk and rap is that one is this artistic movement that is made up of people who are on the inside and they want it out, right? And then the other is a movement of people who are on the outside and they want it in. Like these, these are very different things. And so it's always kind of interesting to me when, when folks talk about the commercialization of rap and, and the way that rap crosses over as this, as this turning point where rap kind of loses itself, it loses its consciousness, it loses its soul. And I'm like, well, it, it, but it's not punk rock. Like rap music, rappers, the whole industry, these folks like, wanted to be part of the cultural mainstream from the from the beginning so to put that ethic on them i think is is just it it's it's nostalgia is what it is it, you know it's trying to trying to hold on to something uh when that that genre is changing just before i think we, we kind of move on to kind of really focusing on easy e as this absolutely central figure in the evolution of la hip-hop i mean the other thing I think that you talk a, a lot about in the book that that sets LA that sets LA apart is the LAPD and the LA County Sheriff's Office and just the the their their malevolent presence throughout this entire book and throughout this entire story really. The book is weaving that story of the commercialization of hip hop as it as it relates to LA rap and the militarization of the police in LA and the way in which the militarization of the LAPD is, it becomes the standard for policing nationwide. So it's from the beginning of the story, really, I mean, the fact that you have a vacuum within the black nightclub scene, within the black art scene in LA, the fact that there really are not venues for up and coming black artists to showcase their talent and for a and to find them. The fact that you have in the fifties, this, this incredibly rich black downtown art scene in LA and that by the seventies and eighties, that's gone. That's related to the police. And that, that is very much related to what Parker's police department, the LAPD, what they were doing in order to crack down on the nightclub scene, crack down on uh, the black economy within, within South Central in particular. And part of the reason why the nightclub scene moves west, and of course this is connected to the Watts uprising in 65, and the, you know, the what happens after the Watts uprising is that you have a lot of flight. You have white flight, but you also have black flight out of Los Angeles, which means depletion of dollars, which means that, you know, the, the black economy that is so strong in the 1940s and 1950s in LA, uh, it, it really takes a hit. And that includes, you know, a lot of um, the black nightlife disappears. And so the, the fact that these mobile DJ crews are filling a vacuum is connected to what the black community is dealing with in terms of police harassment, police surveillance, the, the strengthening of the police force and what it's doing to kind of keep black LA isolated from the rest of LA. So from the, from the beginning, there's a connection between what's happening in LA and, um, and the LAPD. And then of course, 
you know, one of the first, I mean, the first chapter is about the Batarang, which is a song by Tati T, but it's also, of course, a reference to that, the battering ram tank-like vehicle that the LAPD deploys in 1985. For listeners who may not know this, this is a vehicle of war that they, like an armored truck, basically, that they put a huge steel battering ram on and then used to break into suspected crack houses? Yes. Yeah, I mean, from Chief Daryl Gates' point of view, the battering ram these these tank-like vehicles borrowed from the U.S. Army. These things were like on the Vietnam War front. They borrowed them from the U.S. Army. Uh, they were used in the 84 Olympics in L.A. for you know, to counter the threat of, of actual terrorism. And then in 85, the LAPD deploys them in, in residential streets in L.A., Black residential streets. So Daryl Gates sees this as a, as a way to solve a problem, that there are rock houses in LA, there are there are drug distributors embedded in these neighborhoods in LA, and his SWAT teams are having trouble doing drug raids and catching them in the act, catching them with the product, catching them with the cash, catching them, catching them dealing, catching them using, catching folks using. So you know the idea is we need a way to crash into these houses to catch folks in the act. So this is in Daryl Gates' mind. This is going to be, um, th- there's going to be more precision in the drug raids if we use and, these And Daryl Gates is the chief the of Gerald, police? Daryl Gates is the chief of police. Yeah, he comes on the LAPD in 1978 and then really kind of ramps up uh, the drug raids, ramps up, um, he strengthens the SWAT teams, and then he introduces these tanks. I mean, if you've seen the Straight Outta Compton film, the 2015 Straight Outta Compton movie, in the first scene, you see a depiction of this, right? And there's there's a way in which, like, it's terrifying. The thing just kind of barrels down the street with this huge steel battering ram. And it's not that different from what it really was and how it would have uh, created terror within the community because you don't know where it's going to strike next. So, you know, and for young kids, I mean, even... So Toddy T is in Compton, right? So he's not actually... He's growing up not within the Los Angeles Police Department's jurisdiction, but the the stories about the battering ram, the the fear that that thing, that these tanks in communities, the kind of fear that it generates, that is that becomes for Toddy T, you know, a theme to write about in his music. Because it's it's what folks in his community are talking about. Like this, this is the the scariest, most provocative uh, thing to generate stories and rumors and fears. So you know, it, it makes sense that that some of his early raps, Toddy T's early raps, would um, be focused on the battery round, focused on drug raids, focused on the LAPD, Daryl Gates, the mayor, Tom Bradley. There are a lot of the kind of local things, local crises people are thinking about that ends up in the graph.
DJ Cruz and Dance Cruz. Mm-hmm. We have uh, gangs as both kind of social and economic affiliations. We have an increasingly violent, increasingly intense police department that is in some ways kind of um, creating economic destruction that then creates fewer mm-hmm. non-gray or black market economic activities, which then creates more black market economic activities, which then creates more police violence in this like terrible terrible cycle and then you have into this you start having rap music that's pulling from various strands in that have started to appear in new york rap so starting to pull from kind of the the tougher less dance focused of of schoolie d or run dmc on the east coast Mm -hmm. um i think about like the trigger man beat again that uh Mm -hmm becomes the center of new orleans hip-hop it's also from this period of time it's talking about uh like like gangs and violence in in queens and all of a sudden this this uh t covers i guess the beats of these popular hip-hop songs but vernacularizes them makes them about the bataram makes them about what's happening in his community and it really sets off an earthquake i guess yeah it, it i i like the way that you phrase it. I tend to think of it as Toddy T kind of doing Weird Al Yankovic. I mean, there there's a way that his raps over UTFO and the Rap and Duke and all, all these, you know, at the time, which were pop, these popular New York rap hits, there's, there's a parody thing that's happening in what Toddy T is doing. I mean, he's making these street tapes to sell He's, you know, he's dubbing these, he's recording them in his, in his bedroom, he's dubbing them and he's selling them for, I think, 10, 20 bucks a pop. I mean, just, you know, it's kind of in the same way that, that Egyptian lover is selling vinyl out the trunk. Like, you know, you are producing this thing on your own. You essentially own the master, right? I mean, it's kind of a master. It's a, it's a cassette tape that you're just dubbing, but then you're producing them and then you're, you're selling them for cash. And so, you know, the, he, he has to have some entertainment value in there. And I think, I think there's a way in which like the parody rap track really works for entertainment value. It's it, it, like you say, there's, there's reference to local vernacular, local issues, and it's also funny um, and provocative, right? So um, there's, there's a comedy element in there that reminds me of what Weird Al Yankovic is doing. And there, there are some other guys like Russ Parr on local radio that's doing a similar kind of parody thing. So there are references in the culture that, that I think Toddy T is, is reflecting. Um, Ice Cube is doing the same thing in his, some of his early performances. He's, he's um, doing similar parodies of Run DMC songs for crowds at like Skateland. Right. So my Adidas becomes my penis. Right. The famous, one of his most famous parodies, which is to take something very popular that folks know, 
but then to make it their own, to make it, you know, make it, re make references to local vernacular, but also to make it feel like an inside joke. And there's a lot of that going on, I think, in the, in the, the mid eighties. I also just, I love that. It's one of these like <laughs> secret threads through what I can tell is all of American music culture. That's also how Irving Berlin got his start oh. <laughs> in 1909. Doing parodies. <laughs> doing doing dirty parodies in a saloon in like do, dirty and like like uh, racially charged <laughs> parodies. We're not sure exactly what the parodies were because there's no record of them, but they were obscene parodies in 1909 yeah. <laughs> in a, a a Chinatown saloon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, blue material it works, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, LA is the home of Red Fox and, and those party records were everywhere. I mean, I think probably a lot of these kids who are making rap parodies in the eighties, their parents had, had Red Fox party records in their collections. Probably, you know, it's the kind of stuff you, you sneak as a kid, you listen to and you hear a lot of, you know, real explicit talk about sex in particular, but also about, you know, lots of things, race, violence, like it, you know, it's, it's there. Um, and these are references I think they're pulling from, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's the bridge, the uh, run DMC, I think is a big deal. The fact that run DMC, uh, you know, that it's a different kind of sound from Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five or Sugar Hill Gang. Like it's very different. Like it sounds hard. It sounds street when it comes out. You know, a lot of the guys that um, that are that I quote in the book, including folks who are not just in LA but in places like like Dallas and Houston. I mean, some of their first reactions to hip hop. Of course, they were, are familiar with Sugar Hill Gang. They're familiar with Grandmaster Flash and the, mes the Message. But their first kind of visceral response to hip hop is to Run DMC because it sounds street. It sounds like the kids from around the way. Like it, it, it sounds closer to home. And so I think that that also changes things in Los Angeles, not right away, because I think there's a resistance to Run DMC. Run DMC is touring nationally by, by 85, 86. And there's an audience for Run DMC in LA, but I think there's still a little bit of a resistance to embracing Run DMC wholeheartedly, in part because the electro scene is still pretty big, but also because I think, you know, folks are, you know, Toddy T is a big deal in 85. You know, folks feel connected to their local artists and I think that you know they want something of their own so Run DMC changes I think the the um, the aesthetic in in a big way but ultimately what LA rappers are looking for what LA fans are looking for are rappers of their own and you know with playing around with parody I think is the way that some of these rappers are bridging the influence of New York to creating something that is their own, that reflects on LA, reflects on, you know, local experiences that is for the local community. And I guess into that space steps like Eric Wright. Yeah. And I, he's, he's so interesting. I think it, for me, he's interesting in ways that are different from the standard stories of LA and standard stories of, of, Eze and of NWA because what I'm interested in, in in is how he figures out a way to carve it carve out space for LA. 
because that's a tough, that is a tough task, especially in the eighties when New York has such a monopoly on hip hop. I mean, really until, until 90, maybe like until hammer puts out, please hammer, don't hurt them. Like, I think that and even after that, we could talk about, we can talk about the crossover as this, it, its own conflict, but even until that point, hip hop is really synonymous with New York. So all these other local scenes, all these other regional scenes, they really have a big challenge to figure out how to pull the spotlight in their direction. And for LA, that's especially difficult because of all the stereotypes about LA. I mean, it, it sounds very cliche, but even music writers who should know better were saying that you could not have rap coming out of LA because there weren't tenements and it wasn't, you know, it never felt, it, you don't have real winters, right? So there's not a hardship in LA that can produce real rap. So the assumption was that everything that's coming out of LA is just limp. And, you know, I think that this is around the time of like Tone Loke and Wild Thing this, and also Hammer. I think there was this, this way in which like Hammer was sort of became a proxy for everything West Coast. And please let's talk about Hammer in a minute because I am from the Bay and I have something to say about Hammer. But, <laughs> but like, I think that there's a way in which Easy e figured out that the, this is an uphill battle to um to, to figure out how to get around those mythologies of LA to represent LA and LA rap as being just as hard as anything coming out of New York because I think he recognized that that was the way in which to get respect from within the hip-hop community and also to sell to consumers I think he figured out that those two things had to work uh in concert and he he used the media you know, like he, he, through Ruthless, figured out the radio was not going to play, definitely not going to play LA rap, was already not playing hip hop. MTV was probably not going to play LA rap, was not playing much hip hop at all, except for Run DMC when it did collaborations with Aerosmith or did a rock song like Rockbox. You know, like I think he figured out that the way to get attention, the way to create publicity was to create sensation, was to provoke the public and to get the media to create good copy for, for the music press and for, the, and for the, the broader press eventually. But I think he understood that if you can do that, then people will be attracted to the music. Easy is his name and the boy's coming. Straight out of Compton is a brother that'll smother your mother. And make your sister think I love her Dangerous motherfucking race in hell And if I ever get caught, I make bail See, I don't give a fuck, that's the problem I see a motherfucking cop, I don't dodge him But I'm smart, lay low, free for a while And when I see the park pass, I smile To me it's kinda funny The attitude show a nigga driving But don't know where the fuck he going, just rolling Looking for the one they call easy But here's a flash that never sees me ruthless Never seen like a shadow in the dark Except when I unload it's like very complicated because at some level you know then this is the period of time in which la has increasingly become like 
and LA gangs and like black, young black men from LA have increasingly become like central to a number of kind of like racial fears in the, the white mainstream media that this is like LA is is becoming increasingly notorious as like the gang capital of the US and Ruthless Records and, and NWA both seem totally willing to be like oh yeah that yeah we're 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 the baddest people in the whole world while also it, doing their best to express the very real angers and injustices occurring within those communities and like why you would say fuck the police it's a delicate balance and and they don't always strike that balance i think that the place to look to understand what they're doing is to the straight out of compton video this, this is something I talk about a lot in one of the chapters in the book. And I talk about fuck the police, but I really privilege the story about Shaded Compton, the video, because it comes before fuck the police. And I think you can really see what they're trying to do and what it, and the, the potential pitfalls and what they're trying to do. If you look at the Shaded Compton video and the fact that NTV bans it, and then Ice Cube basically goes on a press junket to talk about MTV censoring this video. Uh, I mean, they it's a bold move for them to put out a video for Shade Outta Compton, which is, of course, the, the first single off their debut album. It's the, the, you know, the first track on the album. It introduces them as a group, right? It's very in-your-face. It's very braggadocio. It's kind of like this kind of um, like a come-for-us vibe. So they, you know, they're really saying, look, this is who we are, take it or leave it. And we're doing something harder than anything you've heard. And then they make a video for that. And like, and what's in the video? The video is not, I mean, the video is, is them walking through alleys and, you know, pointing their fingers, like their kids pretending like they have guns, right? It's, It's them acting tough. But the premise for the video is a gang sweep. So it's, it's all these cops chasing them. It's from the perspective of the uh, the cop who is chasing these black kids around the neighborhood. Uh, and ultimately in the end, the cops with all their weapon, weapons drawn have them face down on you know the hood of the cop car. They're all in the paddy wagon, except for Eze who somehow <laughs> escapes. But like that, that is the, the video is is about police harassment. It's about the LAPD and it's about what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Like that's what they do with their first with their debut video. And it, MTV bans it. The Washington Post says it's incendiary, right? Spin Magazine says that it kind of like, it blurs the line between good and bad somehow, even though it's only police who are wielding weapons and only police who have power. These, these kids who are running away from the cops are ultimately uh, harassed and they're, you know, they're arrested. So they don't have any power in this video, but somehow... You know, MTV bans it and says that the reason that they're banning it is because of all the references to violence without saying who is violent in the video. And so Ice Cube goes on this press, the, this you know, press tour basically to call out MTV for its censorship and then also takes opportunities very deliberately to do two things. He's, he's talking about police violence in LA. He's drawing attention to the fact that what they're depicting in that video is what happens day to day. So, you know, folks might be 
um, curious about gang violence in LA, maybe because they saw Dennis Hopper's film Colors. But he's basically saying like, look, this is what we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. It's the police who are the problem. It's the police who are the gang in LA. And he's talking about this simultaneously promoting the group and the music, right? So there's something here that is very much about publicity, but it is also simultaneously a political move where he's talking about the, the police violence that is the flip side of the story of gangs in LA and drug violence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like he's saying, no, look, like we're trying to show you our perspective, the black perspective of the crisis in LA. Right. So it, to me, it's, it's a very important moment in their career and a very important moment in the, the, the evolution of LA hip hop, where you start to see the way in which commercial attention, commercial success can serve the political activism part of it, like that, that you can you can seek publicity and seek attention for the music and, you know, want to talk the charts and want to get around radio blackouts and MTV blackouts in order to sell records and also simultaneously use the platform that you're creating for yourself to talk about these real problems in L.A., that they're doing both things. And I think it's it's hard for scholars and historians and sometimes for fans to be able to reconcile those two things, right? The fact that there is this profit motive, they're interested in commercial success, they're interested in accessing the commercial mainstream, and simultaneously they're doing something that we can identify as political. That we don't often want to connect the forces of capitalism with radicalism, that those two things are not supposed to happen simultaneously, but they they somehow do that. No, this is maybe like a like a, a little bit out, out on a limb question, but I guess both the kind of understanding of publicity and image and how it works and their access to the kinds of media vehicles that allow them to make those moves how much that's connected to them being in LA which is one of the media centers of certainly the United States and and the world I mean Hollywood's there yeah I yes I think it matters um there are ways that it matters practically when it comes to building DIY success with you know, with the infrastructure of the music industry, in part because you have the movie industry is connected to the music industry within LA. I, my research didn't dig into how much access these young artists had to the film and television industry. This is not something that I, that I researched and it's not something that I looked into deeply, but it's the eighties. And so the way in which young people are experiencing media, it changes so fast, right? We talked about MTV. I mean, MTV alone, but, but like the whole, the, the wider network of music, video, TV, music video channels alone is kind of mind boggling. Like we think about music video and we associate it with MTV and the rise of like that one channel, but there were so many music video channels that, that popped up in the early 1980s you know, along with the fact that cable news becomes very, the 24-hour news cycle becomes very important. Tabloid talk shows. Uh, I mean, COPS is introduced 
in the 1980s. America's Most Wanted, like, like there's so much that's happening in the 80s in terms of visual media that I think, like, I'm not getting at the answer to the question of whether it matters that they're in LA, but certainly there's a lot of visual media, television, film coming out of LA produced in the 1980s that is influencing the way in which these young folks are thinking about image and thinking about the the currency that you can create by getting media attention. I mean, I definitely can say, like, thinking again about some research I've done about bounce music, it's like no one wanted to go to New Orleans. Like, you couldn't get a camera crew. There wasn't a <laughs> record. You know, New Orleans is kind of famously in its own little world. Sure. <laughs> um, but... You know, there wasn't, there weren't mm-hmm. record label outposts sure. in New Orleans. You know, you, you'd have to fly to L.A. You know, <laughs> to I think, meet. There is something I'm, I'm thinking about. The colors makes me think of something that is connected to, to your question. Because Dennis Hopper, when he decides to make this film, he wants it to be as quote unquote authentic as possible. So he films in Watts. So this is the, this is what year is this the film this colors produced colors. he films it in 87 and it comes out in 88 it's a huge success huge success huge blockbuster success on orion pictures big you know big studio um and it is super controversial when especially when the lapd gets wind of it i mean there, there's a weird thing where dennis hopper he's playing both sides like he he networks as 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 well as he possibly can within the black community, he has casting agents pulling extras from within the community. And he, and he wants members of the Crips and Bloods to be extras in the film. So he famously touts that whether or not that's true, you know, it's hard to say, but, but he touts the fact that, that many of the extras in the film were in fact authentic gang members. So this is very important for him, for Dennis Hopper filming in LA in Watts, you know, at the Nickerson Gardens projects, like all of this is very important for Dennis Hopper to create this film that he wants to be as close to documentary as possible. And he's also working with the LAPD. Like he's working with their, uh, their gang task force, weirdly, like going on ride-alongs to try to get a sense for his actors to get a sense for what life is really like for these cops. Right. So this is the process for him. So he's embedded within LA or he's at least trying to be embedded within LA for this film. And so there, there is a way in which, you know, having Hollywood there, having filmmakers come into the community, come into the black community and to a certain degree, exploit the, the crisis that's happening within the community to make a film. You, you can understand why Ice Cube would say basically, fuck Dennis Hopper. Like we're, we're trying to talk about police and gangs from our perspective. That's from his, that's from a white man's perspective. That's from this white filmmaker's perspective. That's the cop's perspective basically, but we're going to make this record. We're going to make straight out of Compton. We're going to write these songs, fuck the police, all of this. This is going to be from our perspective. So you can kind of understand how witnessing that and understanding that you have this industry that is curious about what's happening in their communities and, and monetizing that, that they would see not just a problem with that, but also potential opportunity there. So I guess kind of to, to, to wrap up, 
so so what happens then, right, is you then have these things are building. NWA has large scale success. Both Easy E and Ice Cube and also Ice T all have real success. And then kind of simultaneously you have the like uh, the largest urban uprising since the 1960s in the the Rodney King uprising and kind of the next generation of LA rap talent in Dr. Dre and the chronic which really I, I always think of also as like and introducing Snoop Dogg <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, what seems like happens is, is all of a sudden rap has is no longer synonymous with New York, that it has been taken and brought home in a convincing way, really for the first time as like you can be no one's saying like, oh, you are you really a rapper from L.A.? It's like, no, of course, you're a rapper from L.A. And in some ways, I guess that sets the stage for everyone else who's a rapper from anywhere else forever almost. Yes, that's exactly right. Which is the point. I think to have LA do the work to pull the spotlight West and to wrest control from New York. I mean, as much as that pissed off New York, it was, it was critical. I mean, I, I think that that ultimately what Dre does with the chronic is not only essentially reverse colonized pop music, right? I mean, everything becomes hip hop after the chronic. I think that the other thing that is accomplished there is it opens the door for Atlanta. It opens the door for Houston. It opens the door for New Orleans and Miami and Chicago. Like there, there's a way that if LA can do it, I mean, even though you have this West Coast, East Coast thing, of course, that happens, you still have Andre 3000 on the Source Awards saying, you know, we got something to say. Like the, 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 now there's a way in which these other local scenes, they see a model for carving out space. And that is really the, I think the overarching narrative in the book. And what I also hope that the scholarship does in, in kind of a bigger meta way is to open the door for there to be other histories, not just like niche histories about these different local scenes, but other histories that are important to tell in, in terms of the diversity of hip hop and in terms of how each of these scenes studied on their own terms can tell us something about the way in which hip hop develops and the way in which it matures by the 21st century and the way, like, the way it's changing now. I think you can't really understand contemporary rap music without understanding the way in which it crosses over through LA or the way in which the Southern scene develops in the mid nineties. Like you have to understand those things to kind of understand the way it develops. Um, And your listeners who are New York hip hop fans are going to hate me for saying that, but you know, I, I really think it's, it's part of the story that has to be told in order to recognize what's so important about the commercialization of hip hop and, and, and the, and the doors that it, that it does open. Uh, I mean, the one thing I'll say is the gangster image, right? So the, the, 
the notion of gangster rap, which is in part an industry created phrase, but it's also something that the rappers themselves at that time embraced wholeheartedly because it became synonymous with Los Angeles rap. So there's a way that like that gangster rap label was a very important branding tool at that time in the, in the 90s. And, you know, it, it also sets up these guys for being, being criticized from within the hip, from within the hip hop community, from within hip hop circles and outside, outside hip hop, because there's this way that like gangster rap in the nineties in particular. And I think even now seems like a branding tool that makes a commodity out of real hardship and real violence in LA. But I think for these guys, for the artists that I talk about, that that label is, it's important for two reasons, because, you know, first it is a way of erasing the border between art and life. Right. So, so the, the, the fact that they kept talking about where, you know, we're, this is reality. This is reality rap. Uh, this is the, the truth from the street. Though that, those kinds of illusions, ultimately that's a political act. The fact that they are saying that they are erasing the border between art and life, it's a political act in the sense that they are choosing to do something that black entertainers for virtually all of American history up to that point had not been free to do. So there's a way that there's something very political in what, in, in, even in that label and what they're doing. And the second thing is, is that, you know, they know that the gangster image, you know, even as it is a tribute to dudes from the neighborhood, even as, you know, it is, it's a tribute to their peers and it's a reflection of, as they say, you know, the reality that they live day to day, they also know that it serves as a useful way to provoke the nation to pay attention to them. Like I, like I was saying earlier, you know, this is a deliberate move to pull the national conversation in their direction so that they have a platform like Ice Cube did when MTV banned Straight Outta Compton so that they have a plat- platform to talk about their experiences, to talk about their oppression and to talk about their fantasies, to talk about whatever they want to talk about, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a way that they are drawing audiences without compromising the art, without compromising their original vision and this to me is so important because it opens doors for rap artists to be wildly experimental and to ultimately to reflect many, many, many different visions of black culture, right? You talked about New Orleans bounce, you know, the fact that like now you have queer perspectives that are integral to different local scenes and, 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 and to a certain degree to, to hip hop writ large, that that, I mean, Folks might think I'm giving gangster rap too much credit, but there's a way in which like gangster rap, I'm making rap commercial in that way by remaining sort of deliberately connected to community experiences, you know, refusing to water down the material, uh, being sort of committed to things that are provocative and bold and candid about black life and, and talking about white supremacy and talking about policing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like by doing that, by crossing over in that way, they create opportunities for, for people to kind of go in any direction. I also wonder just thinking about this as like this breakthrough in terms of, you know, more economic terms is that it allows this music to be 
have one eye on a local scene where you can sell 10,000 copies of a tape and another eye on a national scene. I'm just thinking about, you know, uh, disco, right? That there's disco scenes that are, I, I, I don't know this music particularly well. I'm sure that there are, are local disco scenes that kind of sound different. Certainly there's a myriad of local disco and R&B labels. But speci- thinking specifically about disco, where really it seemed relatively focused on the mainstream and wasn't able to speak to, you know, super hyper-localized experiences in the same way. And so that when you get a massive sea change, all these labels go out of business or many labels go out of business. Whereas hip hop, you know, you can have a moment where this kind of music is selling. It can go away. You can keep it going locally because there is this way that it's geographically focused. And then in five years, things come back and you could be selling again. You know, that's, we get waves of like, there's rappers from St. Louis. There's no rappers from St. Louis. There's rappers from St. Louis again. And it's because the St. Louis scene didn't go away because you're able to make music that's geographically specific to communities in, in like what you were saying, this incredibly important way. Yeah. Yeah. You're making me think of two things. So DC's go-go scene is something that of course is very important to the local community, but it doesn't, it doesn't go big. Uh, I mean, there's a minute <laughs> that, you know, EU kind of crosses over. There's a hot minute when, when go-go is, is a big deal, but it doesn't cross over nationally. And there, there was a point in the eighties in the, in the mid eighties when that's what folks assumed hip hop would do that it, you know, that it was fleeting, that it was like disco in the sense that, or it was more like something like go-go in the sense that it was this local phenomenon. It was very insular, New York based, New York focused, and the insularity of it was going to be its downfall. That, that hip hop, because it was created in this place in this very specific local, uh, with this very specific local backdrop that it was, it was not sustainable. And this is part of the reason why big labels don't pick up on it initially. Why there's not investment in it is because the assumption is, is that it's going to go away, that it's going to, you know, it's going to kind of flame out pretty quickly. And, you know, I think the fact that a place like LA and eventually the South and all these other local hip hop scenes create something for themselves that they're able to market broadly, that that they're able to do exactly what you said. They're able to have a foothold within the local scene and then also market broadly, that that's really important to, to, um, to create a genre that is so dynamic and so diverse that it is sustainable, right? Because if it only, if it stayed this New York thing, based on New York sensibilities and New York landscapes and New York ideas and New York vernacular, it wouldn't have survived. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there are only so many parodies that you can do. <laughs> you have to create, I mean, it, yeah. And then the thing I was going to say is E40 is a great example. I mean, like I said, you know, I'm biased because I'm from the Bay, but E40 is a great example of somebody who is very like local hero, just a phenomenon within the Bay area and didn't really catch on until Hyphy caught on. And then E40 kind of, you know, cause he links up with Lil John and, you know, tell me when to go gets, goes 
bananas big that then E40 kind of catches on nationally. Um, but then he fizzles out, but he's still huge in the Bay and he's huge in LA and he's huge in the South. Right. So like he maintains a certain, uh, a certain popularity and celebrity in these different local scenes, even though it's kind of like here and there, he has some, some national attention that that's kind of important. I think, as you mentioned to the survival of hip hop and the way in which hip hop continues to be so central to American cultures, because it's constantly changing. It's so dynamic. Um, and yeah, and, and, and different regions are, are critical to, um, to generating that kind of excitement. 